Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 104 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Max Fosh. Max is a YouTuber and comedian and somebody who gets himself into the most unusual of situations all in the name of entertainment. Things like running to be London mayor, leading thousands of people on a treasure hunt for £10,000 buried in a suitcase, spending a full 24 hours naked, being followed by a private investigator for a month, sneaking into London Fashion Week and so much more. Max has done a lot. And in the next hour, you're going to learn the realities of going from presenting a local radio show to just two listeners to now having over 50 million views, where Max finds the confidence to put himself in the most uncomfortable of situations, the lessons Max has learned from filming some of his most popular videos, a mindset that you can use to push yourself through difficult challenges and reach the upside that sits on the other side of them, and so much more. Max is somebody who I've watched for a few years now and his content has always really intrigued me. So to have had this opportunity to sit down with him and ask some of the questions I've always wondered about and hear his answers on topics like confidence, like where he gets his ideas from, like how he stays focused and a lot more. It's a really great conversation and it's one that I think you're really going to enjoy. But just before then, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. I've got a pile of books in front of me as I stand and record this of the next five guests, the next five people coming on here. People like Professor Adam Hart, people like Rory Sutherland, people like Johan Hari. There are some really great guests coming up and I don't want you to miss those conversations. So click that subscribe button and you won't miss them. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 104 of Life and Lessons with Max Fosh. Max Fosh, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. So... Typically, with a guest, it's really easy to define kind of who they are and what they do. And so I don't normally need to ask this part. You know, for example, guests coming up on this podcast, we have a behavioral scientist, we have a productivity coach, we have a uh, a guy who's really big into evolution. And you can kind of put those into a bucket and say exactly what they do. But I think to call you just a YouTuber does you a bit of discredit. So how do you actually describe what it is that you do as a job? <laughs> it sounds like I'm at, I'm at dinner with the, with, with the parents and the aunts and uncles. Um, they're like, well, we know what you're doing, but we're not quite sure. Um, it's, I, I, I think pre- pre- predominantly I'm a YouTuber now, as you said, that that, that can mean that, that that is such a vague term in, in and of itself. Um, I think that what I do is that I make content entertainment for people, but the primary place where that goes is YouTube. Um, I think that being called a YouTuber has relatively negative connotations because of what YouTube probably used to be. Um, and there was a, I think there's a, there's a, especially in the older generation, those who don't consume YouTube, there's a, a bit of a preconception that YouTube is kind of like you sit in your bedroom and you make a video and you go and vlog yourself getting milk. And I think that's quite a reductive way of saying that sentence because like, yes, some YouTubers do that, but just by saying that that's what they do and they make money from it, it's a really reductive thing to say because 
they might just be getting milk, but they've managed to do that in a way that people are watching. Like it's it's a YouTube is a very um, democratic place. The, the only people the you're, people are only going to watch your videos if they enjoy your videos. So um, that's that's got I've suddenly got into a larger conversation about what YouTube is in general. But um, I would say that I am uh, someone who makes entertainment. Yeah, I, I'm I'm an entertainer, I think, but predominantly that entertainment sits on YouTube. Do you find yourself having to kind of change that answer depending on the context? Yeah. So if you bump into, say, a 19-year-old in the street, it's all well and good. But what about a great aunt? Do you yeah. have to kind of water down the answer? A hundred percent. I say I say for people like friends of my parents who it's, it's funny because friends of my parents think that I'm a, I'm a radio presenter, which which is probably because that was the one snippet they got about five years ago when I was doing radio. So I think I would say to people who I never met over the age of 35 i'll say i'm a stand-up i'm a comedian maybe um uh, but yeah i do you're, you're you're so right i do change my answer depending on who who i'm who i'm talking to so i'm sure we'll go into it in a minute but you've done some fairly mad stuff in your time from running to be london mayor to hiring a private investigator to follow you around buying an airline for a couple of hours burying ten thousand pounds in cash breaking fashion weeks all this mad stuff right but before we get into that kind of present day version of you how on earth did you arrive doing this as a as a real paying job what's the story from say 10 year old max who may have had ambitions to be i don't know a solicitor and then how would you go through that path of being like oh shit i can actually make money from just being that guy i think the, the when people ask that question i think there's there's often a preconception that it's very linear it's like a to b like i i thought that right i will get to b and i'll get to becoming a youtuber and this is what i need to do and um, when it's far from the truth, like I did, I think ever think that I was going to be a YouTuber even five years ago. No. And that's not that I didn't want to be, but I didn't think that it was possible. Um, and so it was a very, very slow incremental changes of things happening, things not happening that led me to where I am. So it, as you say, like I wanted when I was growing up, I, I, I went, there's no, no um, uh, secret that I went to a very privileged school, a very a, a kind of a, a very posh and private school and there was when I left there there was a kind of preconception that I was probably going to go into the city and and work in finance in some description or work in the insurance industry like a lot of my family members do but I think that I I got I, I did an internship when I was about 18 or 19 and I sat in in the city and I was shadowing people and learning what they do and I remember thinking is is this it? Is this what everyone that I've for the last five years at school that everyone has been like, oh, my God, I can't wait to to get into this 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 world. Um, and so it was then was I realized, OK, maybe there's something else that I want to do. And it was a university where I wasn't actively pursuing like I want to go into a career. I just tried loads of different things and I tried them because I wanted to try them. It wasn't that I, again, I, I wasn't doing it because I wanted to think, OK, maybe this will lead to a career. So I joined the theatre society. I joined the radio station. I joined the cricket club. Um, and all of these things helped me. Some, some didn't, some did. And it was with radio that I did a few student radio sessions and really enjoyed it. I think mainly that's because I'm a, probably a bit of a raging narcissist. Um, so I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I can talk uninterrupted and no one's going to care. Um, and that's the, that's the whole thing. No one cared. Like I remember there was a listener counter in the studio and I switched it on and it was like, current listeners of two people and I knew that one of those was my mum so it, it was it was a bit of a moment there I was like okay that, that I'm really enjoying this but I'd love for people to, to listen I don't know don't care how many it is but 
as long as it's more than just my mum. And so that was unknowingly, that was a step that I'd taken in the direction of where I am now. So I went and did around the corner from university, there was a hospital radio station that I joined and I worked my way up and started on the 1am till 3am night shifts and then ended up doing the breakfast show by the time that I'd left um, three or four years later. Um, And that's when I wanted to be, to to go back to that that point of it being linear, like I was absolutely fascinated and fixated that I'm going to be a radio presenter, I want to be a radio presenter. And um, then things didn't work out with radio. I, 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 I auditioned for a few stations and I didn't really get anywhere. Uh, they didn't want me. So I was like, okay, um, I want to, uh, what can I do? I, I've got this presenting kind of um, experience. Can I do anything else? And I'd always wanted to do kind of man on the street interviews. I'd watch them and thought they were really fun. So I thought, like, hey, let's just um, try those out. So I made a few videos, edited them, put them on Facebook, and people seem to enjoy them on Facebook. So I made a few more. And now, like, YouTube, still at this point, YouTube is like a distant glint in my eye. I thought there is, YouTube is such a difficult world to try and, um, access. There is no way I'm going to be a YouTuber. Like, I'll just be a Facebooker because I can. Uh, and this was like back in 2017 and 2018 when Facebook was being used a lot by my generation. Now it's over my, my peers, my demographic. It's now they've now kind of migrated to other platforms. But it was another example of, of just another little stepping stone. And, and then I made connections and made friends with people who were YouTubers. And I suddenly found myself in a YouTube video that, that went very viral. And then before I knew it, I had 60, 70,000 subscribers. So my point being is that I never, it was, it was just happy circumstance that, I mean, I got lucky. People say, oh, you have to get lucky. Um, and for me, my getting lucky was I, I met people and I'd made videos in the past. Um, and I suddenly found myself with this opportunity. It's like, oh, great. I can just keep doing this. And so it was a very, very slow burner. Like I've been making videos since 2017. Um, and last year was the first time that I really could do YouTube as, as, as kind of like a full-time job. You said that there was a period where you were doing the radio show and there were two listeners, right? You now have somewhere north of half a million subscribers. Given that your motivations here sound quite intrinsic the whole way through, which is why it's been quite a gradual slow burner. Does it feel different talking to half a million people compared to two people? Does anything feel inherently different or is it the same process in your mind? That's a really good question. And I think I'm now I'm now more aware of the audience, but like it's impossible to to visualize half a million people or, or, or people who are going to watch the videos. So I always the, the only thing I'm thinking is how can this be the best story for somebody like I, and, and maybe there's as, as you get as I'm getting kind of as I'm growing, there is also a little bit of something in the back of my mind is like what's going to work? What what is more people likely to, to like than less people? So I don't want to sit here and say, no, my motivations are exactly the same for two and half a million people. But that that, that wouldn't be uh, that'd be slightly disingenuous for me to say. Um, they are definitely ever present. And I do think about them. But ultimately, the most important thing for me is, is making something that I think is good that I think would I would want to watch and that's actually um something that a lot of people don't when people are starting YouTube channels they don't quite think about they're like make something that you would want to watch make something that because if you want to watch it then there's there's a high likelihood that there are other people that want to watch it um and think and also when I was doing it to two subscribers there weren't <laughs> it was not that thought process of is this any good it was like oh my god I've got this platform just to talk and no one's going to interrupt me um so I 
yeah, I think now I've 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 looked much more into the the storyline element of it. Do you fear not to suggest that your content's particularly controversial, but do you fear that as you grow and as you gain more prominence, you almost build this target on your back? So I've spoken to guests here before who have literally said the words they are just waiting for them to be cancelled because, you know, the the more people that see you, there's going to be this kind of subsection who dislike you and then they're waiting for you to say something, not to go into the Molly May thing and our opinions sure. there, but the point is she said a fairly uncontroversial thing but because it came out of her mouth suddenly the internet was on fire for three days do you fear that mm. as you grow you're stepping towards maybe being more cautious about how you say things yeah i think i'm definitely more more cautious of of how i say things i mean not that yeah it's it, the answer to that question is yes like you, it is something that sits in the back of your mind and um i i do it's not something that i necessarily worry about but it's something that i'm aware of and yes, you're probably right that there are certain things in videos that I watch back and think, is that, I will be ultra cautious if that makes sense. Like if, if there's just something that in the news right now that doesn't fit with that, what's in the video, I probably will take it out. Um, now that's, but, but also I'm not that worried in the sense that I, my whole content, my whole, the whole reason I make videos is to be silly and inoffensive and to have that escapist element um so i'm not i don't think any and and i think that i've got quite a good maybe not uh, my point is is that the videos i make are just meant to be fun and like if, if that if it does it might happen it might like robbie knox a friend of mine who's a youtuber he, he says he's we i did a walk with him and he was like it's all gonna happen Every, everyone gets cancelled at some point um, and that might be true, but I, all I can do, that's, that's almost kind of out of my control. Um, cause what I found interesting about the Molly May situation is that that's the, 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 the internet blew up about a week after she had made those comments. Um, and so it wasn't initially the initial interview when it came out and those initial people saw it, it didn't, um, it didn't warrant a reaction, but a week later that it did. So it's almost, almost out of my control. Um, all I can do is to make sure that I'm kind of conscientious and courteous to people and and make things that people will enjoy. What do you make of the, uh, this is quite a deep question, but what do you make of the um, kind of two-tiered society in which we hold those who create and those who kind of have provenance to an entirely different standard? And the reason I ask this, and I've pondered this for literally years, there's somebody I know who was a big figure in the uh, kind of early grime music scene so he started a big youtube channel gained prominence um you know millions of followers and then one day he tweeted a like a meme of some sort which could have been construed as kind of adding humor to domestic violence that's obviously not what his intention was um so i was just about talking to a meeting saw this tweet for nothing of it half an hour later came out of the meeting and he was number two trending in the uk and there were thousands of people who no doubt literally didn't have time to see the tweet because it was deleted nearly immediately um, just trying to pull him down. And I just, I don't know where I'm going with this exactly, but I find it weird and interesting, not least because I'm sat in front of a creator, that we as a society hold people like you to an entirely different standard and expect you to behave in an entirely different way, even though the reason we like people like you is because you're relatable in the first place. What do you make of that? I think, I don't think that's a new thing. Like, like celebrity culture has always done that. Um, it's It's a little bit like when we see... I mean, I'm a football fan and 
we often there's often outrage when a footballer does something in their personal life that a lot of people find disagreeable or don't agree with and I find and I look hey I, I'm probably one to, to sit here and say that as well as I can't believe they did that now I probably won't go and bash them on on Twitter but the the, the point is there and I think that's really interesting because ultimately we like them because they play football very well and therefore we associate that they will be upstanding individuals in the in in the rest of their life because they are such fantastic footballers and again I don't know where that goes and I don't understand what effect that has but it's definitely true and influencers if, if that's what we are collectively known as are just the the the, the new celebrity so it, and but I think with social media everybody has that opinion and everyone can voice their opinion which is fantastic but it makes that noise I think it just makes the noise amplified. I'm sure that noise is probably already there, but you're talking with your mate down at the pub. Whereas now you are saying that to a thousand people on Twitter. So that just gets amplified and, and it just kind of re everyone, everyone knows about it. Um, I, I also don't know what the, what the answer or the solution or, or really what kind of my, my take is of that. But I do think that, I don't think it's a new thing. I, I think that celebrities have always been held to a higher esteem, um, because they do one thing very, very well. So I do want to talk about videos in a minute, but just before then, I want to pick up on a slight tangent of something you said about five minutes ago, which is um, through your education and perhaps even into university, uh, those around you, your peers, there was an expectation that you would go into some sort of typical job, right? And um, when we met very briefly at that school in London and nobody was putting their hand up because they were all too shy to ask questions, <laughs> I threw this question at you and I'd just like to dive into it a little bit more. So my question was something along the lines of how did you deal with that kind of messy middle between the moment when you realised that perhaps, you know, a typical job wasn't your true aspiration, but before YouTube, you said last year was the year that YouTube really became uh, properly viable for you yeah. in that middle ground when you're looking at your peers and they're getting their pay rises and their nice cars and their watches or whatever people spend their money on these days how did you kind of manage yourself to make sure that you stayed on that true path rather than deviating to something that is perhaps easier but would make you less happy I just enjoyed what I was like I enjoyed making videos I enjoyed kind of making something that was just as entertaining as possible I also I have to stress I was very lucky that I started all of this whilst university so at, at uni I started making videos whilst at university so that that pressure to get it right first time wasn't there because I could always say oh it's fine I'm still at uni like there's there's no there's no this is why I say to people like if you if you have a passion try and get into it at school and university because the risk is if you are lucky enough to go to, to, to university, because the risk is so low, um, and it, it it just it just happened so that that when things were happening and doing well and looking good, I everyone was starting their kind of careers at the same time. So um, I never really looked over my shoulder um, at other people um, to see what they were doing. I just was, I was just quite motivated to, to keep making videos and do something that I enjoyed. And if it was going to pay me money, bloody hell, that's, that's amazing. Count me in. So on these videos then, um, I've said it before, I've literally, 
I was so invested in the treasure hunt that I've spoken about you on the podcast before, right? And I said at the time, and I genuinely mean it, I think that your content on YouTube is the most interesting. And it's because it all, there's never really a mold, if that makes sense. Like you don't know what that next video is going to be. So with all of these wacky ideas and these situations that you put yourself into, how is it that you come up with these video ideas? It's, it's, it's by, it's, it's a number of ways. I think a lot of it is kind of things that I've, I see in my day-to-day life and I ask myself a question, oh, how could that be a video? So that, a good example of that is the roundabout video. Um, for those who don't know, I bought, I became the first YouTuber to buy a roundabout um, or sponsor a roundabout. That's, that's probably the, the, the less clickbaity way of saying that. And that video idea came about because I was driving around a roundabout on the A19 and I saw this has been sponsored by Washington Fireplaces. And I thought, Oh, I want that. How, how do I do that? So that's something that we've all looked at, but we, uh, but I kind of thought, oh, let me ask myself a question. So how can I do that? And then it snowballed from there. So that was one particular video idea. A lot of the time, the video ideas come from existing video ideas that I've just tweaked slightly. And I think this is where a lot of creators worry um, and maybe go wrong in that when they're starting, they think that there needs to be something really fresh, something really new, something that's never been done to really set them out from the crowd. And that's not necessarily true. You can take something that is is already successful and works and just change it ever so slightly to suit your voice or your message. And that's not, this isn't new. Like the entertainment industry does this all the time. And you look at the sidemen, they are doing um, rep- replicating kind of TV shows that we see on, on entertainment, like Deal or No Deal or um, The Wheel because the weakest link because it works like it is it's inherently a format that works and so why would you go and and try and come up with this brand new incredible new idea when you can see one that already exists it works and just tights putting your own edge on it so that's where a lot of my ideas come from another another good idea um the treasure hunt you just mentioned um i was really invested during lockdown about the treasure hunt of forest fen who was a very famous, oh, he was, it was a, Fenn's treasure was um, a famous kind of $2 million uh, treasure chest full of jewels and gold and diamonds that this philanthropist or art dealer, Forrest Fenn, buried about 15 years ago. And he released a, uh, a poem and it took people 15 years to find this treasure. And it actually got, it fa- got found in 2020 during lockdown. And I just thought, hey, everyone's going bonkers about this. Like, it's really captured everyone by storm. Everyone likes to win money or everyone likes to think that they're right. So why don't I just do my own? So I don't think that that was a treasure hunt. <laughs> that's, that's a tale as old as the pirates. Like, that's not exactly a new idea, but I just thought, okay, how can I make this a little bit more me? And I was very lucky to be able to, to give away lots of, lots of money because of a sponsor. And I, I'm in that position to be able to do that. But I don't want this idea that I can just sit there and suddenly this idea pops into my head and it's just fully formed. Oh my God, that's amazing. It's a lot of the time it's like looking at things that have been made and think, okay, how can I change this ever so slightly? Do you find yourself struggling to switch off when you're out and about <laughs> driving around roundabouts yes. or on a date? Like, do you, <laughs> do you have so. any notes in your phone, for example, which are like just four words that would absolutely make sense as a video idea, but then yeah. just get buried and never happen? Totally, totally. Um, and that's something that I'm, I've, I've, I've set myself a goal for 2022 is, is to, to try and separate the work and my personal life because the, 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 
constant data that YouTube provides you means that you can there's you can just never switch off like you can always think okay what's next what's next so I'm trying to now foster an environment where I have my work and I have my personal life and and have them separate but it always happens like I was driving on the motorway yesterday and I was stuck behind two lorries two vans and I was thinking I said out loud, like, what video can I do with a van? Um, okay, you can put things in a van. You can you can cover a van in in like certain paint. Where can I put the van? Where can I place the van? And after that, like, I just came up with an idea of putting a van on a street in London and opening a bar in that van, in the back of a van. Like, is that legal? Like, can I do that? So that's a new, you're right. It, it doesn't really turn off a lot of the time. Do you ever find yourself having to? I think it's. Um... What are their name? Josh and Alfie, isn't it? The guys who do the the mad kind of hidden camera prank stuff. Do they, I know that they talk a lot about the legal processes that they need to go through to make sure that what they're doing is sound. Have you ever had to kind of sanity check yourself with a solicitor? Um, I had to with street with street smart stuff when I was first starting. Um, because I just wanted to check that if people are talking in public, what what the legalities of interviewing people um, were, and um. Other than that, no, I don't think I have. I, I think this might this might age really badly, and I'm sure someone's going <laughs> to might come back to this exact podcast and clip me up right now. So, guys, I hope you're doing your trolling. Um, but I think I have a pretty good um, inbuilt risk factor in me. I think okay, is that okay? That's not okay. Like I think that's quite fun. That's quite silly. That's not okay. Um, God, that's going to age so badly. That isn't it? I'm going I'm to make a video in a year's time, and God. Um, but and a lot of the time is having a support system around you that that will say that's a bad idea no don't don't do that um because we've seen youtubers who get down this rabbit hole of wanting to go bigger and bigger and bigger and then getting unstuck logan paul is the best example of that because youtube it rewards going bigger because you get more views, which gives you more subscribers, which gives you more money. So you're in this endless hamster wheel. And so what was acceptable for you when you first started, that baseline suddenly drops when you need to go larger. And you don't, you're not necessarily aware that you're doing this. And that's what's so dangerous. And so for Logan Paul with the suicide forest he did in Japan two or three years ago, or four years ago, that was, in, in my opinion, that was a perfect representation of someone who, was being lost in the elements of YouTube, like I need to go bigger, I need to go bigger, and then you lose that sense of what's acceptable. So the way you combat that is having a team around you of people and family and friends who might not be in that era, in the, not in the YouTube scene of like, no, that's that's a bad idea because of X, Y, Z. Have a think about that and come back to it. Um, so, but it, it's it's a it's a, it's a tricky tightrope to walk. So notwithstanding those those more extreme ideas right i guess that there are more video ideas that pop into your mind than there are those which make out the other end as produced videos on youtube so what is your kind of discernment process between deciding okay this idea is awful though it was funny at the time and this one really has legs i'm going to plow two weeks of my life into it do you have some sort of process or is it just a gut feeling i try and visualize the story it's like okay what's what's the story there so i saw a tiktok um, yesterday that said um, it was about this woman who in the early noughties she wrote to 350 celebrities asking for them to send back an autograph on a piece of fabric and um, she and the reason why it went viral on TikTok is because she got Betty White's uh, autograph who recently who recently passed away and I sent it to um, 
my editor and producer who I work with and we had a chat about it and we then was oh we could do that like I I asked for 350 celebrities autographs but then we realized what's the ending there what's the story the story is the title like how is that interesting once it only is only interesting if if something mad happens with those autographs so a lot of the time it's thinking okay what why is that why is that interesting yeah it's interesting you asked for 350 celebrities autographs but is the title giving away the entire plot there if it is then it's not a particularly good idea so there will be a very quick process and when thinking okay this is good this is good and i've got better over time like there are video ideas that i've made i've tried to make and i thought it was a fantastic idea and, and like we've gone to the edits like that was absolutely terrible um but it's just that's just a kind of trial trial and error situation are there any videos that you regret not making that maybe didn't make it across to that let's produce this list but now you look back and you're like that would have banged no because i would have uh actually well the the videos that i I couldn't do because of external forces like if there's a video that i could do i would have made it um and i think it would have banged and if it doesn't bang that's fine like there are loads of videos that don't bang um it was there was definitely i got in about early last year 2020 i got a message weirdly from belle delphine um, who, for those of you who don't know, is a very kind of controversial figure on, on the internet. Po- not polarising, but she's quite controversial. She um, was an OnlyFans model, uh, or is an OnlyFans model, but also I think she's incredibly intelligent and knows what she's doing. Anyway, that's beside the point. She said, oh, I love you. I love your videos. Keep going. And I replied saying, it'd be great. Can I, can I interview you? Like, you know, do, she never, she's never spoken at that point. Like, can I interview you? And I thought that would have absolutely just I, the, the title of I interviewed Belle Delphine would have been just it would, I would have hit two million subscribers in about a day. Um, and she replied and she was kind of interested initially. And, and she, she we went back and forth a little bit. And I had this idea of like a Zach Galifianakis between two ferns style where I would give her all the questions beforehand. And if she wasn't comfortable um it would be more of a creative and collaborative silly effort but she eventually said she eventually said no which was gutting and then weirdly she started going on podcasts about two weeks later so i (laughs) I was absolutely livid and so that's probably one of the only ones that i've i've thought that would be really good never happened um oh there's also another one this was actually a zach and mate of mine zach and jay they had a video that they wanted to make which was i sang crimea river in the crimean river which just as a title is just so silly and so funny. Um, but due to geopolitical tensions in the area, uh, it's not uh, possible, unfortunately. Um, but so, so those are off the top of my head video ideas, I think would have been really funny, but didn't get made. But most of them I do make myself. Have you, you spoke about Belle Delphine saying she really likes your stuff. Have you had any other unexpected DM slides or kind of somebody acknowledging your work from perhaps an era before you really got into YouTube that you see as like a quote unquote real YouTuber. And then they're like, Max, I really like your stuff. And you're like, how has this happened? I think the one, the one thing that happened was, was, uh, was Joe Sugg. Uh, cause like, and like those older YouTubers as really established YouTubers. And, um, I was, I was probably on about 50 or 60,000 subscribers. And I just released this metal detecting video where I went and uh, spent the day at a metal detecting convention. And I'd released that video and didn't think much of it. It was doing quite well. 
and I was walking past, I was in London, and I was walking past, there seemed like loads of cameras and lights and everything was going on. I was like, wow. Um, and it was the, uh, the opening of Strictly. Uh, it was their like promo day. Um, and I was walking past and there was like fences up all along the, where the, the kind of general public were watching and standing. And, and Joe was, Joe Sugg was there and I'd never met him and never spoken to him, but I thought I just wanted to say that I enjoyed his stuff. And I, I, I shouted Joe and he turned around, looked at me, smiled and walked over and went, hi, Max. I thought, what, <laughs> what, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and he was someone who I'd, I'd watched part of his stuff when I was much younger and one of the OGs of YouTube and someone who was really, really uh, influential into, into the YouTube space. And he was like, yeah, mate, I just watched your uh, metal detecting video. I really, really enjoyed it. So it's mainly been from other YouTubers. Uh, I had a, a singer called Freya Ridings, who I really like. And she just messaged me saying, I really like your stuff. So that was quite cool. Um, but it's mainly been other YouTubers. I don't, I don't, I quite haven't had that like Drake DM slide that I know a lot of YouTubers <laughs> kind of talk about and they get very excited about. No, but apart from that, it's mainly just YouTubers. On the flip side, have you become climatized to being stopped in the street? And assuming you do get stopped in the street, is that still a weird thing where somebody walks past, double takes, and then is like, you're that guy. Are you, <laughs> did you, do you feel uncomfortable? I guess is my question, or is it kind of normal now? Um, I do, I do feel uncomfortable. No, majority of the time it's, it's really lovely. There are certain environments and times when I do feel a bit uncomfortable when they themselves aren't really sure who I am. So like what you just said there is a perfect example. Like the, the most of the time it's, it's like, hi, um, I, I watch your videos. I really enjoy them. Thank you. Well, th thanks for making the videos. Like, oh, thank you so much. That's really sweet. And we'll have a chat and I'll uh, ask them a few questions about themselves and we'll, uh, chat for about five minutes but the times when I do struggle with is when someone will just be staring and pointing and just say you're that guy and in that, <laughs> that scenario like I don't know what to say I'm like I, I might be uh hello um and I often I often get if if there's a group of people um there one person will say oh Max hello like, I watch your videos and I'm like oh yeah nice to chat um, and their mate or someone who's with them won't have seen my videos and won't know who I am. Quite like, there's no reason for them to. But they'll, they'll then say, oh, I have no idea who you are. Um, <laughs> like, what, what am I supposed to say in this scenario? It's like, well, I have no idea you are either, but, but hi, nice to meet you. Um, so that's the only time where it, it's a bit awkward. And you're like, oh, okay, th thank you. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for saying so. Um, but most of the time it's lovely and we just have a chat and... I like talking to people I like, and I like understanding when and why they started watching my videos in the first place because it helps me as a creator understanding, okay, what, what works. Mainly it's all the posh stuff. It's like, oh, you're that guy that interviews posh people. I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's true. You just unlocked a memory there when you were saying that, actually, because for the first two thirds of your answer, I'm thinking I can't relate at all. But actually, 10 years ago to this year, I was on The Young Apprentice for two full weeks before I got fired, right? And then really? later on that, it didn't go well. It's oh, not a great man. story. <laughs> but two weeks after my episode had aired, the, the firing episode, I went to a uh, the YouTube channel SBTV. I went to their Christmas party. And the idea was that they hired out a Nando's somewhere in central London. And like each table of randomly selected fans would have like a, a grime artist or kind of an urban culture actor. So we're talking people like Crepton Conan and Adam Deacon right and I, I walked into this place and obviously everyone's taking pictures of the actors and the musicians and there were these two girls and they were like 
oh my god it's you can we get a picture and i'm thinking i'm not like i i'm not a grime artist or an act here and it was just the most awkward thing as i couldn't quite work out if they were joking or how i should respond or whether like i don't know so i i think that if ever that happened to me again i would just crumble to pieces i think i think that the worst the worst thing that's that's happened to me this was quite early on and i was out with my family and my family at that point didn't really know what i was doing on youtube they knew that i was making youtube videos but it, it wasn't really anything that they thought was taken particularly seriously and as a result i was so so um i was so desperate to to, to highlight to them that what i was doing was was going well and, and was working and so i was i was we were in a we were in a pub with my kind of couple of two of my sisters two of my brothers and this girl came over and said can can you take a picture and I, because I was so desperate to be recognised in front of my family, I was like, yeah, 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 sure. And she was asking me to take a picture of some of her mates. And it, I've never, I've never lived that down. Like I can, anything that I can do in the future uh, in front of my family to prove to them like, hey, look, this is, this is a proper job. They'll still remember that time when I thought a woman asking to take a picture was, <laughs> they watched you want to take a picture of me when in fact she just wants me to hold the camera and take the picture of her mates. So, yeah. I like to imagine that every time someone asks for a picture now, you have to go through that thought process in your mind, like focus, Max. Are they asking need, for a picture with you or from you? Yeah, I need to make, I need to, that, that preposition is very important. Like, what are you asking here? <laughs> uh, so look, the, the idea of this podcast in a way is for me to quite selfishly sit down with people who I think have interesting lives and interesting stories and try and take away a lifetime of their learning in the space of about an hour. And so... Again, I know I said this just before we started recording, not to suggest that the entirety of your life and meaning comes from purely your YouTube videos, but I thought it'd be fun to um, run through some of your videos and then I give you the kind of premise of what you did and you tell me either what you learned about yourself in the process of filming that video and the reaction afterwards, or maybe what you learned about other people or society as a whole. Kraken, let's get into it, Sean. It's like I'm on so, Hot Ones. It's like calling you, calling you <laughs> Sean. <laughs> Uh, so running for London Mayor, what did that teach you about yourself and other people? Uh, it taught me that politicians generally are quite underwhelming people. <laughs> um, and it taught me that you, you really, you, like, if you put your mind to something, you, you, really, can, you really can do it. Um, I was somebody who, like, the idea of like, me running for mayor as like, a completely independent candidate with no backing, no team to do just the paperwork was, was quite, um, was, was mental. Um, so that was what I, what that teach me about myself. Um, it taught me that I was ballsier than I thought I was. Um, I I'll probably look back on that in five years. I'm, I'm looking back on it nearly a year on now and thinking, geez, that was, that was quite ballsy of you to do that. Like, um, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised with myself. Um, so it was that I was, I was ballsier than I thought and that, and that politicians are, are inherently quite underwhelming people. Um, you would think that these are people who are meant to inspire kind of like the next, like next generation. Come on, we can do this. And you would think they're incredibly charming and chatty. And, and now I just found that like the, the politicians that I met for, I can only, I can only speak from experience, but a lot of them were just kind of quite shy, um, quite introverted. Um, and like, yeah, that, I found that very interesting. Um, and the whole, and also the whole process as well. It taught me that politics is just a, is who do I dislike the least contest? They were, I didn't meet a single person when I was campaigning, not that I was particularly campaigning particularly hard, who was, who was voting for someone because 
they really liked the policies or we can explain the policies of a, of a candidate it was oh i don't like their rival therefore i'm going to vote for them um and that was an interesting insight into i think the political spectrum in general so i'm guessing when you started that process you felt entirely unqualified to become a politician i know it was tongue-in-cheek but nonetheless there was that kind of chance of it a chance that something could happen and you may have been voted in during that process when you encountered others who were running for elected office and seeing how they really are as people in the flesh, did it make you feel more qualified or less qualified to be a politician when you saw what the others were like as well? It made me feel more qualified, if I'm honest, Sean. Like, it, it really did. Not that I'm saying that I would have made a fantastic mayor, but it, it made that, that, that gap slightly smaller. Um, and, hey, those people who have been, they've got experience on their side, definitely what a lot of those politicians do. Some of them don't. Um, but those... I didn't, I couldn't see from the outset intrinsically what made them a fantastic politician. Now, obviously, that's a, that's a very kind of simplistic way of saying it. I'm sure I, in the small experience I had with these politicians, there are, I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons why they, they are fantastic at their job. But it made me realise, oh, actually, like you could, I think anyone could be a politician if you can inspire and inspire people and, and really kind of want change, then I think I think it's possible. So in that vein of, dare I say, lesser experienced politicians, I have to ask about what your city hall encounter with Lawrence Fox taught you, because truthfully, I remember the exact moment I watched that part of the video. My heart was racing. I'm not yeah, sure mate, if it was as too. terrifying in real life, but that looked scary. What did that teach you? No, it was that was that was a that was a fun little moment with old Lawrence, because it was it was funny that when he first arrived, firstly, I'm not going to uh, say this definitively. I thought that he was drunk. Um, <laughs> just because I had Lawrence don't come after me. I thought that he was slightly inebriated. Um, and he came over and, and was like, Max. And I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. We're, we're, we're being friendly towards one another. And I was like, Lawrence, nice to see you. Good luck tonight. And, and after about 20 seconds of that, I then realised that he was then going to try and go for me. And I just thought, fantastic here we go because it was i can, and i was surprised that i could hold my own there and slowly as more and more people saw what was happening we just had this like little ring you can't see it in the video but there was like a ring of maybe like 30 or 40 people it was like a like a weird rap battle um and there were people from both sides of like who you supported with and myself or lawrence who were who were trying to like jeer or butt in and and, and discard the other um but it, it, that taught me that I probably I can I could hold my own when I wanted to. It was, in my opinion, it was quite an easy target because all he was doing was just ranting at me. And so the the kind of the dog with the loudest bark has the weakest bite. As I think I've butchered that phrase, but I kind of realised, OK, he's completely he's he's not in any way like this i can't lose from this scenario there's there's only there's only one outcome for me this and that's to win and i could win just by sat standing there and just smiling and letting him just shout at me because he was just undoing himself and even his own team like he was <laughs> his team of like two or three people they were filming it all for facebook live and he was live streaming it live to his facebook and then I think one of them realised that it wasn't going particularly well for him. And you can hear on the live recording them saying, 
okay, stop now, um, wrap it, uh, like wrap it up, T- turn this off, turn this off. And I, and I could see that and I was like, fantastic. This is, this is great. Um, so my, my little battle with Lawrence, it was, it was pretty terrifying. Um, and I was trying to, I was, I was trying to just to get out of there with, with myself intact, but it was, it was something inexperienced that I'll probably never forget. Have you heard from him since? No, Lord, oh bless him. He doesn't want to have anything to do with me, um, which is fine. Like, that's that's totally okay. And now we're not. Now we're no longer political rivals. I, I wouldn't expect any less. But I would have loved, whilst we were political rivals, on the same ballot paper, that we would have, you know, had a bit of a chat about about different issues. But no, he he didn't sit. He didn't think that I was important enough to debate, which is which is upsetting. But hey, Lawrence can pick and choose who he wants to debate. And best of luck in his political career. So speaking of political careers, um, let's imagine that you somehow were elected to be London mayor. You thought, you know what, this politics thing is really for me. I'm, I'm having a good crack at it. I'm going to run for prime minister. You became prime minister, right? And wow. we know that sure YouTube really, is... stre- really stretching this analogy. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all for content. It's all for yeah. content. So you are, you're 10 years now from now, you're prime minister and you've realized that youtubers are actually quite good at throwing their hat in the ring for other things whether it is boxing or rapping or anything else you've got five youtubers that you need to make your cabinet in parliament i won't bore you with positions but they can just be anyone in any sort of position who is in your youtube cabinet what a question um so i think my number one youtuber in that cabinet is uh, a man called bo miles now, I've talked about this, this, this guy a lot because I think he's just one of the best YouTubers on the platform, but he's not really your YouTuber's YouTuber. Like, he doesn't, he, he, he just makes videos whenever he feels like it. He's not that, um, he, but he's an Australian guy who um, makes kind of outdoorsy videos and he seems like a really down to earth guy. So, Bo Mars would be my kind of right hand man for all things um, sensible. Um, I would then get a guy called Ed Pratt to be my um, kind of, uh, he would be my sports nutrition and uh, exercise um, member of office. Uh, he's a, he's a re- he makes incredible travel documentaries of him going around the world on a unicycle. Um, and he, he's like, he cycled around the entire world on a unicycle and he makes these videos. He's, they are just, just so in, engaging and, and intriguing. So Bo Mars, Ed Pratt, straight off the bat. Um, I would uh, get Bambino Becky in there um she's she's a bit she's a bit of fun she can she can do hospitality and entertainment industry a hundred percent um i would go click for taz as well um who is a brilliant youtuber who i've had the privilege of working with a few times um and then of course you want to have uh kind of your your right hand man my, my my kind of confidant and my advisor would probably be robbie knox uh, somebody that I can just uh, ask at various occasions, what do you think I could do? And he'd just give a, a wise, a wise answer. So I think it's important having some members who are slightly older with Bo and, and, and with Robbie who can give a give an old head um, to give some some perspective. So that would be my cabinet. It would be, yeah, Click for Taz, Bambino Becky, Bo Miles, Ed Pratt and Robbie Knox. I like how much you you allowed me to indulge in that real-time micro content generation there (laughs) (laughs) let's get the name of five youtubers and see what happens yeah exactly um so what about the ten thousand pound treasure hunt what did that teach you about yourself and life and people and all that good stuff oh gosh it taught me that people really want ten thousand pounds that was the the main thing um and it taught me actually what was really interesting was to see how people it's like confirmation bias how people will create connections because they want to see a connection um 
Now, it was very easy for me to do that from the from the point of view of having set the treasure hunt or knowing what the answer to the treasure hunt were. But looking at people's thought processes and and starting with the end solution and then making their own way to that end solution. And I don't think that's just that looking at a wider context. That is the case in a lot of things that we're seeing um, in, in public discourse today to to back up one's final opinion on something that they will go backwards and they will work towards that opinion to to back it up with data and that was a perfect example of what happened with the treasure hunt i'll give an example we we wanted to make sure that there was um some red herrings in there and like so we what were the three can you remember sure the three the three places uh darlington um uh yarmouth yarmouth oh what was the third I, I I can't remember, but, but Yarmouth is the one that I was needing. So Yarmouth was was the was the first was was the we we put Yar the name Yarmouth in one of the clues, and Yarmouth is best known for um, fishing, in particularly herring. There is a pub in Yarmouth called the Red Herring, and those were all everyone knew that, and everyone was talking about it, but they still were absolutely convinced that the treasure was in Yarmouth. So much so that people were traveling across the country to go to Yarmouth, even though that it was so clearly signposted that it was a red herring. So that's what I found really interesting that because it was something that they could, they could latch onto and they thought that they got it right. They were ignoring much clearer and obvious signs that, that were there. That's really interesting. Actually, I've never considered that, how that treasure hunt is analogous with the real world in as much as as a, a fully fledged participant in that treasure hunt there were two or three theories that i was utterly convinced were correct yeah. and despite knowing all of these different cognitive biases i even pushed those to one side and was like no it's definitely at this bloody indian restaurant it's definitely oh, so between you, these three yeah. courses so there you go so you were you were were you on the indian restaurant hype so the obviously the word maximum appeared in clue one, didn't it? And yeah. so we get to this third clue and it's Darlington, it's Indian, it's this and that. I forget the actual wording. And obviously everyone lands on one of these two restaurants. And then I'm street viewing one of the restaurants surrounded by bushes. I'm like, this is a goer here. And then there's a petrol station next to it with a maximum height sign. And I'm like, well, it has to be there. <laughs> yeah, there were... There, yeah, there were loads of instances like that, that, that just kind of, you see one tiny thing that doesn't really make sense if you looked at step back in it, but you're, you're absolutely convinced. And the Indian restaurant was, was just like, that was another one that people were going absolutely like potty over because they could, they found that last clue was uh, a photo of, of a, of a takeaway menu and people discovered what Indian restaurant that, that came from and just thought, right, I'm going to ignore the entirety of the other clues that have gone before it has to be at that restaurant um and so that's another example of people kind of discarding what they know and what they what they've previously thought but because they've got one thing right they know one thing they want to so desperately be make sure be, be vindicated that that's that that's the right place did you get uh, other than people literally just dming and saying where's the money mate did you get any mad messages or theories or what was the thing that stood out most from that whole thing the main thing that stood out was that i was getting messages from people saying we are absolutely certain that it's in Edinburgh. Um, I live in Devon and I'm about to set off on a nine hour drive up to Edinburgh. Can you let me know if it's going to be a waste of time? And that was a really difficult message to read because 
I, I, I couldn't say, no, it's not there because that would have set a precedent. So I just had to sit there knowing that people were going to be spending a lot of time just wasted. So that was quite difficult to just read those messages and just realise, actually, these guys, I've not got a Scooby, but I can't tell them they don't. It's the importance of delegation. I, I had all of my theories checked by other people on the internet. I think I sent someone to Darlington, someone to Motherwell. I didn't leave my house. <laughs> that's a much a great smarter, time that's a much smarter way of doing it definitely sure what about being a fake model i know that that's the video that really propelled you forward um in the relative early days of youtube what did being in front of all of those cameras but also being an intentional fraud in that case in the fashion industry what did you learn from all of that confidence is key <laughs> if you if you if you can have this assumed confidence where you uh feel like you belong or feel like you should be there and look like you should be there then it you can there's a lot you can do now again i, I just do want to preface this that i i'm very i don't have to worry about other things due to due to my skin color and i know that, that i've got privilege in, in that regard but for me you can only talk about my experience walking like it's like it's like the high vis experiment like you can walk around in high vis and like the, the high vis and ladder experiment which i think yes there are loads of other youtubers have done like you can get in anywhere with a high vis and ladder because it's just a uniform of uh, assumed confidence. Like, you know that you can go anywhere. But you, you, people just assume you're meant to be there. Well, that's Sean. Yeah, he's, I, I don't know what he's doing, but he's got a high vis. So he must be very important. Um, so that taught me about this assumed confidence. And, like, if you, you can fake it till you make it in a, in a, in a very big way. Without opening you up to a libel case here, I've heard you say before that it seems that particular fashion houses may have taken pseudo inspiration from your, um, your outfits. Is, is there any truth in that? I don't know. I, I don't know. And maybe potentially um, it what I know that it was being discussed. I know for a fact that it was being discussed in meetings at major fashion fashion labels because employees of those fashion labels would message me and just say, we've just had a 30 minute conversation about you in our office. And so I know that definitely did go ahead. Um, whether they just ripped it straight off I don't know. And I'll never be able to know. And I don't think that that's a particularly, I'm not unique in that sense in the fashion industry. I think that happens the entire time in the fashion industry. Um, and it's just the YouTube equivalent of just taking an idea and running with it. So I don't really begrudge them. It's just normally like a fun thing to think that, oh yeah, we, we had a little bit of a say in, in the next year's uh, fashion lineup. So yes, Sean, I would have to, my, my lawyers have instructed me to say that no, there was absolutely no plagiarism whatsoever. So perhaps one of your less kind of out there ideas, but I think one of your more profound videos is the street smart with the elderly. What <laughs> did you learn about life from what they had to say? Because what I found really interesting, and I'm speaking from memory here, because obviously it was a while ago I watched it. Um, my research for this was very, very minimal. Didn't go back and watch it. I'm just going <laughs> to wing it here. Um, but they all seem to arrive at the same conclusion there or thereabouts, which was basically that they took things too seriously and they panicked too much in early life. And that by the time you get to the point where, dare I say, it's too late to do much about it, you then realise that like, the cat comes out of the bag and you're like, ah, it was all this kind of weird dance anyway and i could have just been who i wanted to be what did you learn from those conversations yeah the main thing was it doesn't really matter they all all of them were, were had this kind of mantra of i don't care I, I really don't care it doesn't matter um and i think that's definitely a perspective of you can only get that perspective for someone for someone who's lived that experience because and i'm sure they're right uh, and i'm sure they're right i think but as young people we are so desperate to make ourselves heard and leave our mark 
in the world in some way that we think that if we don't do that, then our life has been a failure, which I know I felt like that a lot. And I still I still feel like that, even with any so like perceived success that I have, I still feel that I need to leave a mark. Otherwise, my life has been kind of wasted. And it was very refreshing to hear those individuals say, look, it really doesn't matter as lot. It, it, you're going to be we're going to be we're all going to we're going to be born with nothing. We're dying with nothing. And we'll, we'll at least end up leaving here with nothing. So do what makes you happy. You don't need to do something that is going to change the world. Uh, you just need to do something that's going to just change your life for the better and change your life for the good. And whether that means uh, taking a job that, that you really enjoy over one that might pay more um, than 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 do so. Guess that goes into slight Molly May territory. I would like to preface that, that I'm only speaking my experience. I understand there are loads of positions where people need to, um, but from from my experience, I'm I'm seeing do things that you know uh, you enjoy. Um, so that's what I learned from them is that ultimately, it, for, they were saying to me that ultimately it all doesn't matter. With that advice in the back of your mind, do you ever catch yourself kind of on the hedonic treadmill as the numbers go up, as everything oh, yeah. grows, where you reach a milestone that once would seem impossible and you're like, cool, on to the next one? Yeah, it never stops. It never, ever, ever stops. And I have, I had a, I had a dinner, I had dinner with, um, it was really nice, uh, Josh Peters and Archie Manners, who are two brilliant YouTubers, they they said we actually never we never have we never have conversations with with YouTubers and we never chat to YouTube so let's just have a dinner so they invited some YouTubers around to theirs and I was sat around this table with just like some of the the best creators in 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 the UK and it was so for every single they ranged from people one of them had over ten million subscribers and I mean I was I was the smallest but the issues were exactly the same they it was it was hilarious to to hear that. Oh, I, I'm looking at that person over there and they've got 4 million subscribers. It must be amazing. But they, they were saying their issue that I had the exact same issue. And I think every YouTuber knows it, but it's so, it's so difficult to put it into action because you just want more. Inherently, we want more and more and more. Um, I, I remember thinking, okay, Max, if you get 100,000 subscribers, you're done. You've, you've, you've done it. you you can, you can start the careers. The career's finished. Then I hit that the week later, it was 250,000 subscribers. Now it's half a million. Now it's a million and that's never going to stop. So it, although it's, it, although it's a, it's a process that I know all too well, it's, it's one that I probably don't practice enough of trying to um, make sure that I combat that in the most successful way. And that's, and that's scary. That's scary. What metrics do you use then for your success in like a, a process related goal rather than this is the end goal, knowing that when you reach that goal, it's going to shift anyway. What do you do to stay on track and stay motivated? I, I, I don't know. I think just trying new things like that's why I start with the comedy stuff, because I wanted to do something completely from scratch and, and, and push myself outside my comfort zone. Like it was something that a lot of people, even in my own team, like people who work with me closely, like that's you bit your bite off more than you can chew that that's too much you're you you haven't had that experience as a comedian and and booking a place like and, and uh, yeah booking the clapham grand which is a 800 seater theater in london that's too much max you've, you've you've done about six gigs before um but i really enjoyed that that challenge and, and like i know i want to make something that that people will really enjoy and a lot of 
there's one person who I work very closely with who hadn't seen the show and they came to the final show and after I'd finished they just beaming at me and they genuinely said I can't believe that I enjoyed it that much and this is someone who like I I think supports me and they, they do support me massively but it was indicative of um that I was really proud of what I'd done there and I've slightly gone off topic there but it 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 goes back to the larger question of you've got to be constantly pushing yourself to do new things to get better. Um, and Russell Kane, who's a very successful comedian, makes a really good point about this, where his metric is he, he just wants to get better every time. So he's a very successful comedian, does national tours, thousands and thousands of seats. Um, and at the end of every tour that he does, he says that he will then book himself in the hardest gig he can find in a room where nobody knows where he is to 20 people in a in a place miles from home because he says that that those gigs exercise the part of his brain that makes him good at his job and so he's like once i've got to that point where i'm really comfortable i then throw myself back into somewhere that makes me uncomfortable because that will make me in the long term a better performer a better entertainer a better comedian i guess one way to to summarize all of the the headers i just ran through there is that you are in some way a paid expert when it comes to putting yourself in uncomfortable positions <laughs> and having to garner confidence from somewhere where is it you you find that confidence from and in those situations because of course we the viewer we look at this kind of polished youtube video and we assume yep max was confident there it all went as planned you know where do you get the confidence from? And in those moments, do you actually feel confidence or is it just kind of running on fumes? I don't know. It's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of terror. Um, it is pretty, it's pretty terrifying for me. I, I always think, uh, the, uh, the, the one, the one thing that gets me through is on the other side of this is something could be something really cool. And, and so this like 10 seconds of terror is what I call it. So like on the other side of that 10 seconds, there's an incredible possibility and opportunity. Um, and that's not just in videos, that's just generally in life. Like if you've got a girl or a boy that you really fancy and you just want to tell them that, uh, and you have that 10 seconds of abject, absolute terror. And then after that, it's done. Like the terror is, the terror is over and it might go well. And if it, it has the opportunity of going incredibly well, that person might reciprocate. like, oh my God, I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, and it's the same with those videos. So that's happened with the, the fake, the fake model, um, the, uh, breaking into the security convention, running for London mayor. I, I was bricking it. I was terrified for, for 10, 15 seconds in a lot of those moments, but on the other side, I can look back, uh, and be like, wow, that was really cool. So I'd rather have that 10 seconds of terror for a lifetime of, of pride of, as to what I've achieved than not take that first jump. Has that kind of time under tension changed you as a person in the real world? And has it made you do anything kind of away from the camera, away from public life that you perhaps wouldn't have done otherwise? It's probably made me take hold of relationships, both platonically and, and romantically, that I probably wouldn't have done previously. I probably would have let simmer and, oh, that's a problem. I'll leave it. Um, and I've tried to fix, I, I will not fix, I've tried to tackle those issues head on. It's made me better at tackling issues, I think. There are still loads of issues that I bury my head in the sand and, and like we all do. But a lot of them, I was like, okay, no, this, this, this could get much, much better, this particular situation, if this scary thing just needs to happen. This one leap of faith 
uh, that, that conversation that needs to be had, that clearing up of issues that, that might that might be there. Um, and so it's probably made me uh, a better it's probably made me a better person in, in, in combating those those difficult situations that we all face both um, professionally and personally. So just before we leave videos to one side and talk about the stand-up stuff, which is incredible, by the way, saw it in Cardiff, really, really good. Um, what is the most terrifying situation you've ever been in? Um, it was probably, oh, oh, I don't know. I, because, I mean, probably like being the, like being 13 and like telling a girl that I fancied her is, is, is probably still the most terrified I've ever been in my entire life. Um, actually, yeah, it was, it was probably on my first ever date and I was 13 uh, and we went to the park and I remember sat there on the grass deciding whether to try and hold her hand and that was the most terrified I've ever been and I don't think it will ever replicate that ever again. Um, <laughs> so I guess everything from there is, is kind of a, a walk in the park um which which might might sound silly and maybe i've i've just i've, I've i have had a, a very privileged life and that has definitely ingrained this idea that i can do uh whatever i whatever i put my mind to um and but no if if, if you want that one moment it was trying to decide whether i was going to hold the hand of of my first date when i was 13. I um I can relate to that so much. When I was in year eight, I asked a girl the day before Valentine's Day. I oh, asked her on cool. MSN, <laughs> big old move. Yeah, on on MSN if she would be my girlfriend, and I put lol at the end. And she didn't say yes or no. It wasn't like this binary answer. It was like let me have a think about it. And the twelve hours that followed before she replied and said yes, thank God. It was like a two month relationship, great success. Oh, that's, but that's, that's a long relationship, Sean, for for back into in in year eight. That's a good one. I mean, it's also the longest relationship I've ever had, so I'll take it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that is terrifying. And it's funny, isn't it, that we we look at these big obstacles in life and we think that it will be like the the kind of defining moments that are most scary or the job interview. But actually, it's just these, these deeply personal, quite, um, I think in a way, without sounding too deep, we are all in situations every now and then. We are still that 13-year-old child, right? Where we think, oh, I, I don't belong here or this isn't for me. And it's just remembering that, you know, you sent the MSN message, it all went okay. So crack on and do the other terrifying thing. Exactly. That is the most profound sentence I've ever said, which has the word MSN in it also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just before we wrap up, like I say, stand up tour, incredible. Talk to me about the process of planning that, scripting it, rehearsing it, uh, and then going out there after a big old lockdown, taking your craft from the digital realm to standing in front of real people, sat in seats, staring at you and expecting something. Yeah, I think, again, it's there might be a preconception of, of people who are looking at it from the outside that, hey, he just wrote this script and he put it on stage and it went super well. That is definitely not the case. Um, it, it took a long, long time and mainly it took other people's expertise um, to to deal with that like, and, and to, to, to make that happen. Um, I, it would be remiss of me to say that if it wasn't for the director, um, a guy called Ed, um, Ed Stambo, who was just in, incredibly good. And like he, I was very lucky that he has had a lot of experience with some, some proper, com like proper comedians um, that he was uh, willing to, to kind of take me on and work with me. If it wasn't for him, the, the, the show would not be what it was. And so I think it was that, like me 
stepping back and allowing somebody to come in and be like, that's shit, that's shit, that's okay, we can work on it, that's good, but that's shit. And so that first script that we're presented and when we worked together, he stripped it all back. He like he took out almost everything apart from one section that was that he was thought, no, that's that's good. Um and we kind of worked at it from scratch together. Um I would he 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 helped me write a lot of it. So um it would be remiss of me to say that he that it was just it was just a one it was just a one man job. Um but also it was time on stage, I think is another another big part of it and, and having the audience I had, it allowed me to have more time on stage than than someone who's starting off in the comedy industry from scratch. Rob Beckett, the comedian, was on Happy Hour um, podcast a couple of months ago, and he made a really, really interesting, profound statement about comedy. He said, let's say you started a new job in an office, um, and you go there, you're working nine to five. By the end of that week, you, you get, you're, you're feeling comfortable, you're feeling you, you've been there for five days, and you've been there nine to five for five days, and you kind of understand the, the lie of the land, and you're feeling quite comfortable. So it takes about a week in, a, in an office job for you to get comfortable. With comedy, it's no different. But the problem is, is you're doing, you're, you're in the office five minutes at a time. And, and so over the course of years, you eventually equate the number of hours that is needed to be on stage for, for eight hours a day for five days a week. And that was a really, really interesting thing that he said, because it's, it's totally true. And I got lucky in the sense that I had my own audience who were going to come and, and thank God to them, watch me go through those five those those first five minutes but I was doing a show that was 50 minutes long or, or an hour long so eventually it got to a point where I was comfortable enough on stage um and and the tour helped I was doing I did 20 23 shows I did each an hour long so that was a, I spent a whole day on stage I spent 24 hours on stage just over the course of the tour and that is just such valuable experience that that I that I got there um so yeah that was that's how I've, i it was a lot of work it was a lot of it was a lot of fun um and i'm really really proud of of the content that, that came out of it and hopefully uh in september it'll be be released to the world how did you feel when you stepped off from that final stage show in london what was what were those first couple of minutes backstage afterwards feeling like oh well uh, yeah i mean I, I posted about it in the video that i i put up about the, the clap and grand show i just i just sobbed it was just this absolute release of just this adrenaline and, and tension and is it going to be okay and is it going to go well and having my friends and family there especially in that London show um it was I remember looking around and seeing my, my parents in in the in the balcony um and I just walked off stage and just absolutely sobbed because it meant that all of that adrenaline just just dissipated almost instantly um and it was just total and utter relief at the idea that I'd done it but what's funny is that we're now six weeks after that show in, in Clapham and I'm like what's next <laughs> I want to do the O2 and it's just and you I don't know I haven't really had taken any time to step back and reflect on on that I should be proud of myself for being able to do that it's like no okay we need to go more 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 but that's just I think human nature I'm going to grip onto that wonderful segue you just gave me for the final question but I want to connect it back to something you said almost an hour ago right so yes what is next but also you said you have goals for this year. What's next and what are your goals for 2022? Um, I've tried not to set myself like quantitative goals. I did that last year and I did that last year. And my goal for the end of 2021 was to hit 600,000 subscribers. And I ended the year on like 560,000 subscribers. Now, 
if I was to look at that black and white, I would think, oh, I'd failed in that goal. I didn't achieve that goal. But that would be remi- that would be remiss of, of all the things that I did last year that I was incredibly proud of. And I thought I had a fantastic year last year and I was really, really happy with how it went. And so having that number at the end, oh, you didn't hit 600,000 subscribers, therefore it didn't, it didn't work out. Like that was a, that was a shame. Um, so my goals this year are, are very much more sustainability based. I'm trying to make myself into a creator that I, en- I still enjoy making videos and I still do. Um, and I still enjoy making that like the, the intricate what's next and what's the storyline there. So those are my goals for this year is to create a, a, an environment in which I can be happy and sustainable and enjoy making the videos I make. So as soon as I stop doing that, then that's the end of the YouTube channel. That's the end of, that's the end of me on the internet. And it happens so often and it almost, it's almost bound to happen. It's, it's almost inevitable, but if I can hopefully make it last as long as possible, then that'd be great. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for this. If people want to go and find your stuff, where should they head? Uh, YouTube.com forward slash Max Fox is probably if you want to watch the silly bloke do silly things. Amazing. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.